welcome back to the Keep It Quirky podcast. I'm your host, Katie Quinn, and this is the pod where I talk with fellow creatives and entrepreneurs about food, travel, and the discipline and drive to create. Passion begets passion. So come on with me and let's do this. Hey, hey, everyone. Welcome back. I am talking to you now from London, but today's interview and for the next few weeks, I will be sharing interviews that I did in New York City, where I was just last week. And because I can't stay in one place for long, I am actually gearing up to go to Somerset, England. I'll be there for a couple of weeks on a farm. Yeah, you heard me right. I'll be trading in my big city vibes for farmhouse cheese making vibes. I am so excited. I can't even tell you. And it's for a project that I am beyond thrilled about that I will tell you about very soon. But before I go to the farm, I would like you to transport with me back to Brooklyn, New York, where I caught up with Michael Harlan Turkel. Michael is the man. So I'll get into all the stuff he does at the beginning of our interview, but here's a quick summary of his current professional landscape. He's an author, podcaster, photographer, food event producer, and university professor. And still, he insists that he's not a Renaissance man. I beg to differ. In this conversation, we talk about everything from profound taste memories to this life theory he has of exploration and constantly being a student. It's really refreshing. The way that Michael defines success is a uniquely excellent one. My ideology of that is it's just feeling happy afterwards. Oh. I mean, nothing more than that. You you got to have some kind of, you know, satisfactory. You have to be sate. I mean, that's it. Michael is one of the most generous people with his time and experiences and the people he knows. I'm really excited for you all to get to know him. He is one of my favorite humans in this industry. We recorded this at the Heritage Radio Network space in Bushwick, Brooklyn. It's behind Roberta's Pizzeria. So we had this conversation with full bellies after eating some delicious Roberta's lunch. And thanks to HRN for letting us record in their awesome studio and to Matt, the sound engineer who made this episode happen. Ready to chat with Michael? Let's do it. Michael Harlander Kell. Hello. How's it going? Good, man. I'm so glad that I could snag you in New York. I'm not as busy as I seem. Yes, you are. That's the thing, though. So I usually, before I interview someone, I have an idea of, you know, what the what the episode name will be, right? Like what the title is. With you, you do so many things. I have no idea what I'm going to title this episode. I have an idea. What's the idea? Michael Harlan Turkel is tired. <laughs> that is pretty accurate. Yeah. So let's let's I'm going to start by just kind of listing a lot of the things that you do. And then we're going to dive into all of them slash the fun ones you want to talk cool. about. Okay, so you are an adjunct professor at NYU um, School of Food Science? Food study. I actually don't know what school I'm affiliated with. with I just started, but I teach food (laughs) photography. Yeah, okay. All right, cool. You do sumo stew, which are of... Japanese sumo-inspired events. Correct. You have written Acid Trip, which is a travelogue cookbook, in addition to co-writing other books and doing food photography for many, many cookbooks. Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, 
let's see, you have at least two, sometimes three podcasts, Food Scene, which is your own with Heritage Radio Network, Modernist Breadcrumbs, and Burnt Toast with Food 52. Yes. Okay, good. I'm like, do I'm like hitting things and um well so what's the deal with the awful good cookbook? What's it did you co-write that one? And photographed it. And photographed it. I joke to Chris Cosentino, the the author and chef behind it, that I was two thirds of the book. So <laughs> it's more mine than his. <laughs> no, not at all. Just I've known Chris for a long time and even before I got behind the lens and did food media, I was a cook. So I, I, I first formed a relationship in the kitchen with him, stepped out, became his photographer, and was lucky enough to also be his co-author on Awful Good. So let's start there with the thing you just mentioned, where you used to be a cook. Where, where were you a cook? Capriccios in the Crodon Hudson in Westchester, New York. Um, I started in kitchens when I was in my teens, mainly to make money and really to eat cheese because my mom was lactose intolerant. And uh. I said, fuck that. <laughs> I, I need a slice of pizza. I need access to that. So I think it was the first time I realized or didn't realize that the closer you can get to something, the more access you can have to it. Ooh. Um, so I, I worked at a pizzeria. I was the second non-family um, member to work there. And I worked there all through high school. Um, I love that cheese was the impetus. <laughs> <laughs> certainly was. And all my other friends, I went to a math and science high school, were going into maths and sciences, and I just fell in love with food because it wasn't that. Uh, I didn't fall in love with food. I fell in love with the opposite of what everyone else was doing. Yes. At what point, though, did you think that you might make food your career? I still haven't thought that through yet. <laughs> um in high school, we had a senior project, and it was called Choose, and I chose to work in restaurants. Uh, I wanted to parlay that into going to the Culinary Institute. I did not. Um, much to my chagrin at the time, and now I see whatever path I went through ended up doing justice to, to where I am now. But I mean, I, could you? I, I don't think you could be doing all that you're doing now without that background. Would you agree? <laughs> My, my circuitous background? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I forget how this was stated, but my wife had once sent to me something about like, you know, I'm having trouble trying to do this. And like, I don't really know the word no when it comes to trying to accomplish a project because I just keep on trying. Um, I keep on trying and then I shift. So it's not a no, it's just I didn't finish that. I didn't see it through. I didn't. And most things, I don't know, my, my batting uh, average is much better than my batting average ever was for baseball. Um, I just keep on trying and keep on trying to figure things out. And uh, the exciting thing about being in whatever industry you may consider me being in is All that of them. Yeah. It, it's, it's a very malleable thing. Yeah. It's, um, you know, uh, the success is, you know, not something that I necessarily have as a meter. It's, it's more enjoyment and uh, knowledge. And, you know, I'm trying to stockpile something for a later date. I still don't know exactly what that final project is or if there's any fun finality to anything I do. Um, but I'm just always trying to gain, uh, you know, and keep on going forwards. Yeah, I, I love that vision of success. Um, although it's, it's constantly changing. So very <laughs> Michael Harlan Turkel is amorphous. Yeah. How, if you had to like put your definition of success into like one sentence, what would it be? 
Ooh, these questions, the the Proustian stuff. Um, I love that shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm never ready because I, I want something so definitive. Yeah. And yet I, I'm so undefined. Um, my ideology of that is it's just feeling happy afterwards. Oh. I mean, nothing more than that. You, you got to have some kind of, you know, satisfactory. You have to be sate. I mean, that's it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's rewind again. You are into food and think you want to be a chef or a cook and you're going down that path. And then you start this project called the Back of House Project <laughs> and you pick up a camera and yeah. take it into the kitchen. Yeah. And then what happens? I didn't know I was starting the Back of the House Project. I had no clue. I was cooking in restaurants in Boston um, and I took a photo class and the only time I had to you know, actually take pictures was while I was working in restaurants. So I photographed uh, plating prep work too and displayed pictures for myself. Initially, it was more like a manual on how to execute a dish. Um, and someone thought it was a project. I'm like, yeah, it totally is. And that was it. It ended up being this key that unlocked doors to places I would have never cooked. Um, Cleo with Ken Oranger, yeah. Number Nine Park with Barbara Lynch, who graciously open their doors to some bumbling, you know, 19, 20 year old with a camera around their neck um, who said they wanted to cook and allowed me unfettered access uh, as a photographer and then eventually, you know, helping in kitchens too and during events. Um, what was supposed to be a semester long ended up being three and a half years. Yeah, wow. And those two restaurants were the first two, and I probably photographed in um, dozens upon dozens, nearly 100 restaurants in and around Boston during those three and a half years. Um, and it was the greatest visual and formal culinary education I could ask for. I just love that you blur the lines between the sides of the camera because the fact that you knew how to do the things or were learning to do the things that you were photographing... I feel like a lot of the times people who would photograph in the kitchen wouldn't like don't know what to do with a knife right <laughs> and so they're like it's it's kind of an uh, other quote-unquote other mentality snapping the picture of this thing but I just love that you were so in it. It's tactile. Yeah. Well, camera's a mechanism to be able to capture something, but I, I like getting my hands dirty. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, that's my point. I'm not sure if I'm being clear, but oh, the no, fact you that you... Okay, I yeah. I just had to reiterate it for myself. So yeah. I'm like, that's what I did? Okay. <laughs> that is what I did. Um, okay, so then would you have ever guessed, could you have guessed when you were doing this back of house project for those three years in Boston that... You know, fast forward, I'm not sure how many years, and I don't want to age you, feel free to age yourself, <laughs> that you would be teaching food photography at NYU. Oh, God, no. No. <laughs> no, no, not at all. Um, and even though it's a food photography course, I still think it's a photography course. Um, it's Food's just one of the many subjects I like photographing. It's the majority of the work that I do. But uh, I don't know when I started realizing I like to teach or I enjoy academia or, you know, the, the greatest thing about anything that I do, aside from, you know, having that happiness after something is complete or near complete is... Um, being able to bestow that onto other people, being able to help other people realize whatever they're trying to do. Um, so, yeah, I, I've never seen any of this coming. And it's like that scene from uh, Old School where Will Ferrell answers uh, some kind of
of trivia. Like I have all this knowledge and do all these things, but I don't remember what I do after them. Like <laughs> I have this instance of like, wait, what just happened? And then I see some shiny ball in the corner. Oh, I'm going to go check that out. And it's just this very funny choose your own venture thing that I'm just been happy, uh, happy enough to choose a couple good ones. Yeah. And the way that Meg, your wife described it, it does ring really true. Speaking of Meg, yeah. she is a baller. <laughs> so she's a wine writer. Yes. Um, and a much better writer than I am. Working on a very exciting book right now. Yes. Are we allowed to mention it yet oh, or no? Totally. Yeah. Yell it from the, the mountaintops <laughs> of wherever in Italy. She's writing a, a wine book with Joe Campanelli um, from Fausto here in Brooklyn about um, like the new scene of Italian wine because I don't think there's been a tome of that ilk um, since Vino Italiano and that's a couple decades a decade or so old it's time for a new yeah. one yeah so and uh, wine may be even more current than food these days um, with the explosion of natural wines and great new biodynamic producers as well as you know the stalwarts of traditionalism um it's it's our access to it has changed everything oh yeah absolutely i mean international wines are i, I want to say a trend but it's more than that mm -hmm. it's people realizing that they can taste the terroir of all around the world um where they are i think the issue is getting importers to import the stuff that's like not just Sauvignon Blanc yeah. grown like all over the place. It's like, no, no, no. I want the things that are specific to this terroir. Import that, please. Yeah. In the same vein that I was able to write a book about vinegar, people are excited about minutia, the, the esoteric, like they can follow these eccentricities and there is somebody that's going to be able to get them to that. Um, if you want like some Norello Mascalese from Mount Etna in Sicily, you can find the person bringing that in because there are people doing everything. It's just a matter of searching for that conduit. Totally. And do you think it was even just like a decade ago, five years ago, you may not have been able to find that person? Yeah. Like it's changed really rapidly. Yeah. But it's so exciting. It's yeah. a cool, it's a cool time that yeah. we are living. <laughs> Absolutely. In some ways and in some ways not, but <laughs> we want to talk about that. Um, acid trip. So you just mentioned how, yeah, you, you did this epic deep dive into vinegar. It took you all around the world, Japan, France, Italy, um, all over America. Where am I missing? Austria. Austria. So how did this project come to you? <laughs> you mentioned my wife is a, a wine writer. Um, we were lucky enough to have enough bottles out and open and one converted. So that started piquing my interest. Um, it happened when I was actually a cook in Boston. Uh, and at Number 9 Park, Barbara Lynch gave me a cap full of something. Uh, I didn't know what it was and told me to shoot it back. And I did. And it was one of those... Not one of those. It was one of them. It was the most profound taste memory I have today. Um, it was acidic, but it was kind of thick, viscous, syrupy, and had all these layers of flavor. And my tongue just wrung for a while. Um, she gave me like a quarter bottle of it and said, here you go. Take it home. Don't fuck it up. And I was so scared that I was going to do something incorrect with this bottle that I didn't touch it for a while um, and tried to do some kind of research on it. And this is, you know, we had the internet, um, but information wasn't as accessible at 
my fingertips as it is now. So for 15 years, I knew the name Gegenbauer, but I just didn't know what to do with it. And 15 years after that taste memory or taste experience, I was in Vienna at the doorstep of Erwin Gegensbauer, you know, vinegar brewery. Um, so a lot of things led me there. Uh, I had a party and filled up a barrel in the backyard with the excess beer Opened that up six months later after, you know, spring had come. It had overwintered. I remember there was snow on the barrel at a point, and I'm like, oh, I wonder what's in there. I kind of knew, but I wanted to forget to see what time would do to it. And it was the best malt vinegar I've ever had in my That's life. That's amazing. And then I spent years trying to reverse engineer that process. I love that time is an ingredient in so many of the things that you've done and in your life, not just literally time as an ingredient in creating the malt vinegar or the red wine that you left out that turned into an awesome vinegar, but also in your professional steps that time, like you picked up a camera in the kitchen three years later, you were just as much a photographer, if not more than you were a cook. Would you say that actually that it happened that fast at the end of the back of the house project? Were you a photographer at that point? Mm, I graduated college, so my degree said that. <laughs> I don't know if I'm still a photographer. I mean, really? I, um, aspects of what I do, yeah. That's that's thinking of yourself. <laughs> I don't always think of myself as a professional photographer, or a professional podcaster, or a professional writer. I feel like they're all things that I'm still exploring. I am a photographer, but you know, I, I I'm constantly a student of so many other people. Um, Yes, I do practice in it. I'm supposed to tell people that I'm a photographer. My parents um, need some kind of occupational title. (laughs) I have it on my business card. But I'd love to have this multiplex business card that say all the things I do. Um, Actually, someone once told me that I had the longest signature they've ever seen. And I had to, like, conflate it because it was all the books and all the podcasts and all of this. And um, I am... Not a Renaissance man by by any means. But you are though. No, I mean I like Renaissance paintings. Um, <laughs> but, well, but you are the definition of a multi hyphenate. Yeah, and like that is what I mean. That's what I am too. Maybe to a less broad extent than you are. But I'm a videographer yeah. slash podcaster slash host slash writer. Like I mean. It is hard to to boil it all down to one thing. So I kind of love that you... It sounds like you don't even try. You're like, I, can't I explore anymore. all these things. I don't like the singularity of anything, even though I did a single subject book and I do a lot of other single subject deep dives. Um, those I, are just pieces of me. I feel like um, if there is a theme, it is related to this uh, time as an ingredient bit. Um that so much of what you're into is fermentation related, it would seem. Um, your deep dive into bread with modernist breadcrumbs. Um, does that does that sound true to you? Does fermentation really get oh, you going? <laughs> yeah, because I, I don't have to check in on it all the time. I started <laughs> the, the whole vinegar. Out. Yeah, I started the whole vinegar thing. I don't know if you know the original name of my vinegar company. No. Um, I think I wrote it in my book. I'm not sure. I used to call it Plus Patience because oh. it was ingredient. It was honey plus water plus patience. But every time I tried to make a logo, it looked like a pregnancy test. <laughs> 
So then Acid Trip grew out of that because I'm like, the only way to know more about vinegar is stop being this weird um, autodidact, you know, Brooklyn Knight that makes barrel-aged things in his backyard and get out in the world, meet people. Um, I went and met vinegar makers. I went and, you know, cooked with chefs all around the world to do this thing. Um, and yeah, I certainly do consider time an ingredient. And the, the only way to learn anything is by investing time into something, too. And I, I joke that vinegar, I chose it because it was the laziest culinary product I could make and still feel associated Stop. with you know, the food world. <laughs> uh, I tried miso before that. Didn't go so well. Um, is that a second book, though? No, no. <laughs> After having gone to Japan as many times as I've had, um, I mean, it's an it's an amazing world. <laughs> uh, and I understand x of it there's so much more to know and some things i just like having them be what they are and appreciating them and not having to you know have the 360 knowledge of that product yeah i mean do you find with vinegars now when you taste it are you totally over analyzing it oh yeah and does it add to the enjoyment or somehow detract from it well just like anything um it's nice to be able to have constructive criticism and I can do that reverse engineer of most vinegars. Now I can find the faults, but also, you know, really point out the pros too. like you did this. Well, this shows the, you know, pH is right. Or, you know, how long was this fermentation process? What, what vessel was it in? Oh, that's the reason. So I can troubleshoot a lot more. Um, but I really do appreciate really great products for their idiosyncrasies mm -hmm. that I might not have been able to notice before. Mm -hmm. Yesterday, I tasted 12 different vinegars in the blind. Um, and For what? <laughs> something I'll, I'll tell you about someday. Okay. <laughs> uh, and but it was it was great. It was A and B samples, um, so six sets. Um, and I had to talk about A versus B uh, from a visual standpoint, from a smell t standpoint, and from a taste one. And I was so scared to do that because I don't think I've ever done that in a public forum before. Mm. I've always done it for myself, kept journals. Um, yeah. Did you feel pressure to like oh, note the right thing? Ter terribly so. Yeah. Uh, and it's all on camera. So. Oh my God. I yeah. can't wait. Um, yeah. Such anxiety going into that. But having the like empirical knowledge to be able to break something down. I've seen in wine. Yeah. I've seen in coffee. I've seen in chocolate. And I can talk about that in the vinegar vein. I just don't know if I ever did it, did it in front of a crowd like that before. Um, and it was cool. To, I'm glad it went well. Yeah, to, to know that I could actually pinpoint certain things. Yeah. In that vein of being like an expert in something and like, you know, you are a vinegar expert now. You wrote this book and you are so knowledgeable about it. Um, and I think in a lot of things of fermentation, it's, it's so easy to get obsessed with, you know, sourdough or whatever, all these things. And therefore, and I think that um, in media, it often has a masculine face to it. And I think that a lot of people feel intimidated or I could see that a lot of people and maybe especially women um, are intimidated to really nerd out about a lot of this stuff. Um, what do you feel about the accessibility of these kind of topics? And what would you say to anyone who feels intimidated? Again, my wife is a much better writer than I am and I'm intimidated about being 
in the same room with her and wine experts and talking about that. Um, I was intimidated and still am of Barbara Lynch at Number Nine Park, uh, Lydia Shire, who was at Lock Ober, and. <laughs> I've been lucky enough to have the tutelage of a lot of really strong and, you know, impassioned women. Um, so not to say I, I, you know, am not a male and am not masculine sometimes and don't realize the, the, you know, gender differences of how people perceive things. But it was really great to find um, Mariangela Motinari in, in uh, Modena, who was a female balsamic maker. Um and it wasn't, you know, Felicity. I sought out to do those things. I like seeing balance. Um, you know, I, I was accepted into so many different worlds. Why wouldn't I be accepting of other people as well? So I'm always trying to figure out how can I make this accessible for all rather than just, you know, the, the dorks who, you know, want to do this deep dive or uh, someone of a certain knowledge level, you know, you, you don't have to have such acuity to be able to let, be let in. You can gain that knowledge. Yeah. Uh, food photography's done that for me too. Teaching this class at NYU, I've had undergrad, grad, and food studies masters all within the same section, and I had to figure out a common denominator, um, not excluding any you know person or or uh, background or you know ability with a camera or an intelligence level. And it's hard to. It's not a layman or a lay person. Um, it's hard to speak at a point where people can understand it and make their own assertions. Mm-hmm. Speaking of the food photography, well, thank. First of all, thanks for talking about this. And I mean, I didn't mean to put you on the spot with like you're a dude into fermentation. What's no. up with that? But I do think I just it is such a beautiful thing. Yeah, and I do think that everyone should be involved. And it's accessible to all because. Fermentation doesn't take more than, like you say, uh, time, maybe some salt if you're going lacto, (laughs) maybe some alcohol if you're going acetic, but it it is accessible because everyone can do it. Um, Renee Redzepi and uh, David Zilber, their uh, Noma fermentation guide, did a talk in New York and they said, here's some blueberries, here's some salt, sprinkle it on top. And they're like, see, now we're all fermenters. That's how Uh, easy it is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I love that you... Do include women fermenters or women product makers, craft makers in the things that you cover in because I think that's an important role that media has to expose, like to shine light on the people of all different backgrounds and all all different colors and genders and everything who do it. So kudos to you for for making sure to do that. Okay. On the note of your food photography class, though, you said that it feels to you like you're just teaching a photography class. Yes, it's a food photography class, but there is a difference between being a great like landscape photographer and being an incredible food photographer. Or would you disagree with that? I mean, food photography is a very specific kind of art. Yeah, it's a niche. Um <clears throat> So I, I want to make this open source because uh, I put together, I lecture on one day for seven hours and I'm like, holy crap, how am I going to keep someone's attention? That for is hours? bonkers, Michael. <laughs> yeah. And you know, I talk, but like, I don't talk that much. Um, I do about two and a half hours of the history of food photography. I think I found the first food photograph. Oh uh, my God. William H. Uh, Talbot. Um, and it's just like a tableau of pineapples and apples in a bowl from like 1843. Um, actually, I think they have the, the, the 
the actual image somewhere in a museum in London, and you'll have to go and double check that for me. Yes, I will. Uh, within the, you know, almost 200 years of food photography, uh, I show portrait photographers, I show, you know, August Sandler and the picture of a conditory pastry maker in Germany. Um, I show Stephen Shore, who's a landscape photographer from the 70s, the new topographics on mm. images he took in diners when he was traveling from location to location. Um, Martin Parr, who's one of my favorite, like, hilarious, kitschy, you know, uh, photojournalists. He's, he's British and I think he's been knighted. Um, like there are so many different approaches to food photography. Um, you can be a, a portrait artist. You can be a commercial photographer. The way I teach it is about learning to see more than anything else. Um, the approach to that, but also understanding your food. I don't mean just where it comes from and who made it, but when food hits a table in a restaurant, you see it, you take a photo, but what does it look like 5, 10, 15, half an hour, an hour after that? As a food photographer, that's what I learned. Um, the, the time, the, the, you know, the, the way, I hate to say food degrades, but how something changes over time. Maybe that's the fermentation aspect of food photography. Yeah. Um, but learning to see that instance, that perfect moment when it looks its best, you have to know how it's sourced and cooked and the propping and the styling and the plating. And you have a very small window to capture the food at its perfection yeah. or capture the image of your mind's eye. So I think I'm teaching people that approach. Mm -hmm. And it's not necessarily just about food. You have to have that intuitive nature about anything you're approaching as a photographer. I love, though, that um, learning to see is what you are really hitting on and mm -hmm. cultivating in these students. And it strikes me that with Acetrip, for instance, I think that it was about learning to taste, right? And like the distinctions between each of these things. So my conclusion, Michael, <laughs> is that you are just a born teacher in everything you do, Thank in you. addition to being a lifelong student of all things. I want to ask you what's next for you and what can you tell us about any new, exciting Michael Harlan Turkel projects? Well, these are all posits and theories at the moment. Um, things are in motion, but I have multiple cookbook proposals Hell that I'm working yeah, you on. do. I want to do another single subject travel around the world thing. I loved, well, the travel aspect. And the, I haven't been that many places. Um, you know, I've been in Europe and Japan and that's about it. So I want to broaden those horizons and the next project will hopefully take me to continents I've never been before. Um, then I have another one actually about... <laughs> A cooking matrix that I developed um, in trying to teach my father-in-law how to cook. Whoa. Um, and it's very simplistic and it just was, it's been in front of my face for so long. And I only realized about six months ago that this might be a book. Um, I'm hoping to be able to explain more of it soon, but... I, you have me very intrigued right now. Yeah. And it's, it's a good spot to be. Yeah. yeah. And I try not to use the word matrix because it sounds a little more highfalutin than it is. Um, it's just understanding a simple concept about cooking that we all utilize all the time. And um, I'm hoping to be able to deep dive that and break it down to its simplest form and create a map for all of us to be able to use it. And it's not a taste thing. 
Hmm. It's not. It's not a smell thing. No. What? What is yeah, it? Exactly. It's a what thing? Exactly. Okay. <laughs> Michael, you know the name of this podcast is the Keep It Quirky Podcast. Correct. That is my life's slogan to not take things so damn seriously and to have a good time while being a rock star, which I think is what you do. So how do you keep it quirky? <laughs> um, how do I keep it quirky? What? I mean, it, you'll have to ask my wife. <laughs> In many different ways. I don't know. I joke about like my OCD-ness about things. And I like order, even though I live in chaos. Mm. Um, I think the quirkiness of me is that I find this soft space or comfort wherever I am, um, either in the way I interact with somebody or the way I see something. Um, you know, I can bring things down to a level. I know this not, might not be a quirk per se, but I don't know. I, I just like being able to share something at a common place yeah. um, communally with as many people as possible. I love that. And I think it totally applies because keeping it quirky for me is staying sane. Mm-hmm. And and that is what you're doing too, creating oh, this soft space. I'm saying sane. Uh, <laughs> trying your best to stay sane though, I finding am. the balance. I love that. And Michael, you this soft space that you mention, it's so true. I feel it every time I'm with you. You're such a joy to just be around. Thank you. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Bye. Cheers. Thanks so much again to Michael. You all can follow him online at Harlan Turk on Twitter and Instagram. That's H-A-R-L-A-N-T-U-R-K. And check out Acid Trip. Check out all of his podcasts. I mean, this man is amazing. So follow him for sure. As always, thanks to Funky Brian for the theme song you hear. And next time I'm talking to you, I'll be in a farmhouse in rural England. So looking forward to that. See you guys back here soon. In the meantime, Don't forget to keep it quirky.